0: Well, Sunday was a good day. Yeah. Where are the fans? We love them just the same. I mean, it's not their fault that their no, team not. fell apart. No, it's not. We did our best. <laughs> what a game. That was really, really fun to watch if you were a Seahawks fan, if you weren't, uh, again... Sympathies, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's talking about Peyton Manning. Everyone's talking about if you read the media and you look in the news the last few days, it's Manning this, Manning that. What happened to Manning? What's going to happen to Manning? What's going to happen with the Broncos? And I'm sitting there going, you know, the Seahawks won. Let's talk about the Seahawks. How about a, how about a little Russell Wilson? You know. I'm impressed with Russell Wilson, i got to tell you. And I'm not here to talk sports tonight. But I'm impressed with this young man. Because the preparation for the Seahawk victory on Sunday began a long time before Sunday. There are some that would say it draws back three four years when a lot of the old guard uh, kind of exited the team and a lot of younger players came in. And the Seahawks is a very young team for having gone all the way to the Super Bowl and won. But back in April of 2013, not very many people are aware of the fact that Russell Wilson, quarterback for the Seahawks, in case you didn't know, invited and paid for his entire passing team to come down and spend two weeks in Southern California to train together. It wasn't official, it was just he said, guys, you want to keep in shape, you want to prepare for the season, come on down, I'll I'll take care of it. And by the way, most of the guys on the passing team make far more than Russell Wilson makes. And he did this, It, it actually was posted on their website, he was asked why, he said just to get together and throw and get our minds ready and our bodies ready for a great season. And did you know that Seattle's quarterback prepared for the super bowl game on sunday by going to church that's where he was that morning while well, a lot of churchgoers were at home you know preparing for the big game he was preparing for the big game by being at church pretty impressive right before the game he sent out on twitter matthew 6:33 seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you why am I talking about Russell Wilson and the Seahawks? Because there was preparation that went into Sunday's victory. A lot of preparation. A lot of time spent preparing hearts and minds and, and, and bodies. And, and it's, it's, it's a football team. Just a football team. But preparation is the deal. Do you realize that for ten years, God had ha- has had this fellowship in preparation? But not to move to a new building. In fact, for nearly 50 years of my life, He's had me in preparation. Not to be a pastor. Not to preach. God is preparing us, each and every one of us, for the kingdom. We are in preparation. And every breath that we breathe and every step that we take in this life is preparation. Not for anything in this life, but for the kingdom. That's the deal. That's what we're preparing for. That's what we're gearing up for. And it will be said on the first day of the kingdom, when we set foot into that time of glory and splendor and wonder under the rule and reign of Jesus, it will be said, this was a long time coming. A lot of preparation went into this. We are being prepared. In Ephesians chapter 6, Verses 14-16, through 16, the Apostle Paul lists a whole bunch of things that are all the armaments of God. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. But there's one of special interest to me, and I really it hit me it literally this morning. I woke up and, and it struck me what this meant. I thought I had known before feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What does that mean? Does it mean you're supposed to take the gospel? No. It means the gospel is your preparation. The gospel prepares you to go. The gospel prepares us for what is to come. The preparation of the gospel always begins long before the sandals hit the ground. Preparation of the gospel of peace And in Luke chapter 9 and chapter 10 tonight, we can get through it all, hang with me, we're going to try. In Luke 9 and 10, Jesus is preparing His team for the long road ahead. Preparing His team for what was to come. So it's all about preparation. Keep that in mind as we read and as we study tonight. And let's begin in verse 1 of Luke chapter 9. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. He said to them, "...take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece." Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. That's the game plan we talked about on Sunday. Now we looked at the game plan in Luke chapter 10, right? The game plan for the 70 that Jesus would send out after this. Well, this is the game plan of the 12, and the similarities are remarkable. Except for one thing. And Matthew points it out for us. When Jesus sent out the 12, he said to them, Matthew chapter 10 verse 6, "Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." That's the one big difference. You have a restriction. The apostles, the twelve, only go to your brethren. Only go to the Jewish people. And then in Luke chapter 10, as we studied, he sent the 70. And I think, as we talked about, it indicates the broader invitation to all Gentiles. To be grafted in to the rich root of Israel. Romans eleven seventeen. But Matthew, when you read Matthew chapter 10, and then you read Luke chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10 is the sending of the 12. It's a larger version, a longer version of what we get in these first six verses of Luke chapter 9. Matthew chapter 10, the sending of the 12. Luke chapter 10, the sending of the 70. And if you read them side by side, they are almost identical. Jesus sent out the 12 with the proclamation of the Gospel. He sent out the 70 with the proclamation of the Gospel. He sent out the 12 with unexpected power. Power to heal. Power to cast out demons. Power to free people. Mercy. The unexpected power. He did the same thing with the 70. Sent them out to heal. Sent them out with the gospel. Sent them out with that unexpected power. And so in both cases, these groups went out to cast out demons, to heal people, and to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now I want you to think about this. What was it that that Jesus spoke through the prophet Isaiah? Spirit of Christ, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verse 1, said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Right? That's what Jesus quoted. That's what He read from the scroll, Luke chapter 4, on that day in the synagogue in Nazareth, when He kicked off His public ministry. That's what I've come to do but Jesus didn't limit it to Himself. And that's what I love about being one of His followers, is I get to engage. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Jesus extends Himself. Jesus extends Himself. He extends both the proclamation and the power, the authority and the ability. It was His. But it was also His to give, and so He did. And so He does. He extends Himself to you and to me as He did with the Apostles, as He did with the Seventy, to expand His ministry. And what ends up happening is far more can be accomplished than by one man. And you know, when Jesus put on flesh and came and dwelt among us, He limited Himself to a degree to a human body. He couldn't be everywhere at once. God can. But Jesus took on those limitations. But in extending himself in his ministry through the 12 apostles, suddenly now he could be in 13 places at once. When he did it with the 70, now he could be in 71 places at once. Jesus extends himself. He says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and a slave become like his master. That's the point. That's the preparation that He sent out the 12-4 and the 70 and you and me to be like Him, to function like Him. We're in preparation mode right now so that when the Kingdom comes, we're spread out all over the place, His ambassadors functioning like Jesus. And it's going to be marvelous. He said in John 14-12, a verse that should blow us away, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in Me, the works that I do... He will do also. And greater than these He will do, because I go to the Father. What do you mean, Jesus? I mean, you guys are going to spread out all over the place. You're going to cover far more ground. And you're going to touch more lives than I could do limited by flesh. And so He extends Himself through us. And by the way, I hear no first century limitation in Jesus' words. I don't hear Him saying... I'm going to send out the apostles, and you guys are going to be able to do what, you know, more than. No, he's talking to everybody who believes. He who believes in me, Jesus says, the works I do, he will do. I believe. Do you believe in him? Then you are called to do not only his works, but even greater works than Jesus did. Well, how can we do that? He gives us what we need when we need it. To accomplish what he needs us to accomplish. First Peter chapter 2 Peter chapter one, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Those aren't just fancy religious words, that's truth. He has given us all we need, everything for life and godliness. So the twelve go out. An extension of Jesus, and the word begins to spread dramatically, and it reaches the ears of one Herod the Tetrarch. Verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared and by some that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Remember, that's what the apostles said when Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? Some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah, Lord. Some think you're one of the prophets back from the grave. And Herod said in verse 9, I myself had John beheaded. He couldn't be back from the dead. Could he? And it says... He says, who is this man about whom I hear such things? And Herod kept trying to see him. That's remarkable to me. What does he think Jesus is going to do when he sees him? I want an audience with Jesus. Oh, you mean the cousin of John the Baptist you beheaded? What are you thinking? I mean, Herod's got to be nuts. But I'll tell you what Herod's doing. He's doing what a lot of people do with Jesus. He's curious. Herod's a looky-loo. Oh, that's interesting. I can check that guy out. i look into this a little bit. Sheer curiosity. In fact, later on after Jesus is arrested and Pilate's not sure what to do with him, Pilate sends him over to Herod, realizing that he's from Herod's district and so somewhat under Herod's jurisdiction. And it says in Luke 23 verse 8, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about Him and was hoping to see some sign performed by Him. I want to see some tricks. I want to see Messianic miracles. And when we get to Luke 23, you'll see Jesus didn't do anything. He did not appease or play into the hand of this Herod. Herod was just curious. And you can find Jesus intriguing. And you can even find Him exciting and interesting. But until you enter into a relationship with Him, there's no forgiveness. Until you get personal, not only will you not be born again, but you will not enter the kingdom. Far too many people sit in churches out of curiosity. Or they find Jesus perhaps interesting, but there's no relationship. Last night, Jake had me come out to the high school group. We we're going to talk, answer questions and answers about the end times. And as we got into the discussion, a lot of the questions that were coming to me, I realized were coming from a place of fear. What if I'm in a moment of doubt? And in that moment, that's when Jesus shows up. You know, I just don't know if I'm... What if I'm not ready when He comes? And the more we talked about it, the more I realized, and it really became the theme of the whole evening, if you are in a relationship with Jesus... There's no fear. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to be afraid of. I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters, if the idea of Jesus showing up before I'm done tonight scares you, then I would say you need to spend more time with Jesus. You need to talk to Him. Get to know Him. Being with Him is not something that is to frighten us. Paul said the rapture of the church, you know what it is? It's comfort. Comfort each other with these words. Talk about His coming. This is supposed to enliven us and excite us and bring us peace. I told the kids last night, think about it. He comes and you don't have to worry about the test. (laughs) But it's all good when you walk in relationship with Him. And So few people walk in... There are too many Herods. There are too many people who are curious about who Jesus is or curious about what those Christians are doing well that's interesting well that's kind of weird I don't know about that but then you start to talk about brass tacks you start to get down to the nitty gritty of Jesus Christ and eternity and the fear enters in that's because it's a relationship of curiosity and not one of love well so that's Herod verse 10 tells us when the apostles returned They gave an account to him of all they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. The second thing we note, as Jesus is preparing, not only does Jesus extend himself, but Jesus attends to the needs of others. He attends to the needs of others. First thing he does is attend to the needs of the of the apostles. They come back and they're on fire. And they're excited. And they've done great things. And their energy level is very high. And what does Jesus say? You need to come away. You need to get some rest. In fact, we know this because Mark chapter 6 verse 31, speaking of the same instance, the return of the 12, tells us that he said to them, "Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while." How many of you find that really inviting? Come away and rest. Time out. You've been working so hard. You've been going like gangbusters. You've been doing your ministry. You've been doing the service. You've been active for the kingdom. It's been fantastic. Come rest. Come and take a break. Never forget this. Jesus attends to you in rest. Jesus attends to you in rest. Any ministry without rest is a ministry that won't last. Any ministry that is driven as opposed to led, is going to end up burned out and on the waste heap of life. But a ministry or a person, a minister, a disciple who finds rest in Jesus is the one that will be able to continue long term, long haul. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, rest is a requirement. Rest is a weapon Rest is salvation. The Lord said through Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But he says to the people of Israel, You would have none of it. How strange. How odd. How odd that the year of Jubilee, which was a year off, was never celebrated. Because the people couldn't take rest. Look at our world today. There was a time in our country where the weekend, mostly Saturday and Sunday, was pretty much off. Especially Sunday in this country was a day of rest. Stores were closed. You couldn't do anything. It was boring. It was a good boring. Not anymore. People are hitting it as hard on Sunday as they are on Monday. It never stops. It's nose to the grindstone. And Jesus says, come and rest. Do you need some attending to in your life? Come away and rest with Jesus. You might say, well, I do that. I try to get away and the cell phone starts ringing. The kids have issues and the boss starts pressuring and people start showing up at the door. And no matter how I try to find rest, I can't get rest. Well, Jesus gets it, doesn't He? He says, come on, guys, let's get away. They get away and the crowds follow them. And what does he do when the crowds show up? In fact, we know from the other gospel writers, they get in the boat, they go across the lake, they get to the other side, and the crowds have run around the lake to meet them there. You have got to be kidding. This is break time. It's kind of like tonight. It was about 5 o'clock, and I was going to take a break and just sit down for about 15 minutes and and chill my brain, play a game. (laughs) And there's a knock at the door. It's John Kramer, one of the high school guys. Hey, Jake said he'd meet me here because we got to get some couches out of your garage. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. So I go around to the garage. The couches in the garage with all of my daughter Hannah's stuff piled on top of them. So much for rest. And it just seems to happen. Jesus gets it. He understands that when it's time to take a break, when it's time to get away, the needs always press in. The needs are always there. And what we see Jesus do is He's attending to His friends. The crowds come busting in and He welcomes them. How does He do it? I mean, it sounds really good to say come away and get some rest, but when you don't get the rest, Lord Jesus, I don't understand. How do I know when to rest versus when to respond to the constant needs of people around me? Here's the thing. Don't miss this. Jesus rested in the Father regularly whenever he could wherever he could Jesus took rest so that he would never have to shy away from those in need that is so different maybe it's not different for you but it is for me because my thinking is I go hard and I go for weeks and then finally I get to the end of myself and I go okay now Lord let's take some rest rest And that was not the pattern of Jesus. Jesus got up early in the morning and went off and rested with the Father. Jesus would, if the crowds were busy all day long, before His head hit the pillow at night, He went off, sometimes He prayed all night long. And found rest with the Father. But what we see in Jesus' pattern of behavior is someone who whenever there was an opportunity to get away and rest, He took it. It wasn't about letting it all build up until I'm so stressed out, I've got to get some rest. I need me a little Matthew 11.29. Come away. And Jesus says, why don't we just do this all the time? Why don't we do it in the morning when you wake up before your day gets busy? And then you'll be ready for the day. Why don't we do it at break time when there's no one in the break room and you're the only one there? Hey, let's take some rest. And the beauty of it is Jesus is there to meet you and attend to you in your time of rest at any time, whenever it may be. So instead of looking for that one moment of peace, look for it all the time, throughout the day. And I believe this is the secret to Jesus. I mean, don't wait till you're frazzled to go to the Father. Be deliberate in devotion and let Jesus attend to you. So He did. He attended. He welcomed the crowds. He cured them. Those who had need of healing, he spoke to them about the kingdom. He was right on as they stepped out of the boat. Verse 12. Now the day was ending. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away. (laughs) It sounds like they're being compassionate. Send them away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for we're here in a desolate place. But if I'm among the twelve in that moment, what I'm saying is I'm sick of the people. Can you just make them go? But He said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. Sarcasm. For there were about 5,000 men, and we've pointed out before, add in women and children, and you're probably up to around 15,000 people. And He said to His disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. I love the word for sit down here in the Greek. It actually means recline. Have them recline. I'm the one who needs rest, Lord. (laughs) They're going to recline. So they all get them reclining in these groups of 50. And he took the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. Note that word, kept. He gave them the broken five loaves and two fish, and the disciples went around and gave out what they had, and they came back, and Jesus was just giving more. And He just kept giving and giving and giving. He kept doing this over and over until verse 17 tells us, they all ate and were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up twelve baskets full. How is that possible? Look at the source. The source is Jesus. If Jesus is in fact God as He claimed to be, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? And that word created is something out of nothing. <laughs> I had a young man last night come up and ask me, when God said, let there be light, where did the light come from? I said, well, God is light, so that's kind of easy. And he goes, no, 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 no. He says he created light. Well, where did he create the light from? And I said, bara. I'm going to borrow a word from Hebrew. And he looked at me and I said, the word bara means he creates something out of nothing. Do you believe that? Now, some wouldn't. You know, Bill Nye the science guy probably wouldn't. Something out of nothing? Well, that's impossible. Exactly. That takes faith. Oh, see, that's where you Christians go. You go to that place of faith. Anytime you can't answer a question, you just say faith. Why do you do that? Well, here's the thing. This is what I told the young man last night. I have faith that God can create something out of nothing because of all the somethings He did that are proven throughout history. I have faith that this is the word of God. Why? Because every single one of the over 300 prophecies about Jesus and his first coming were fulfilled literally. That's a good track record. That makes it when I look at that I say, "Okay. You know, Bible says he's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Who could have planned that?" The Bible said he would be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. The Bible said he'd be called a Nazarene. He was called a Nazarene. The Bible said he would come out of Egypt. Well, they fled to Egypt when he was a baby and came out of Egypt back up to Nazareth. And straight down the line, the Bible said he would be crucified. He would be pierced even before crucifixion existed. I could go on and on. The Bible said he would be be crucified with criminals. He would die with criminals. And he would be buried in the grave of a rich man. Exactly what happened. Stuff that Jesus couldn't even have controlled unless it was all the plan of God. And so we have this, and I'm way off notes, but we have this wonderful this wonderful book that is proven over and over and over and over in one prophecy after another. So when the Bible asks me for faith that God can create something out of nothing, I look at all the fact and I go, yeah, I can believe that. I have no problem believing that. The fact does shore up the faith. It's not blind faith as we've talked about. God has taken great measures to give us all the proof that we need to draw us to that place of saying, all right, Lord, I do believe that you created light where there was no light. That you can take five loaves and a couple of fish, break them, bless them, and start passing them out. and keep passing them out for 15,000 plus people and still have 12 baskets full left over when you're done. I believe it. And note what happens here. See, this is Jesus, again, extending His ministry. In fact, number three, if you want to note this, He superintends His ministry. Jesus superintends His ministry. He takes the the loaves and fish, blesses them, gives them to the twelve to give to the people. Jesus didn't give them to the people. He gave them to the twelve to give to the people. Like a superintendent. Does the superintendent of schools teach in every classroom? Well, of course not. Is the superintendent of schools handing out every sack lunch? No, he had his apostles do it. He superintends his ministry. He gave his followers what they needed to do the work of the ministry that he required of them. And he does the same thing today. He will give you what you need to do the work of the ministry to which He's called you. You don't have to generate it. You can't generate it. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you can create something out of nothing? Okay, I didn't think so. Or I did think so. Yeah. But He gives us what we need. He superintends. Now the timing is somewhat ironic here. as the apostles come to Him with this food issue after He had sent them out. And after they had returned, you know what that means? That means they already have a track record of casting out demons, of healing people, even as they went to preach the gospel. And now Jesus says, give them something something to eat. They cast out demons, but they're freaked out by dinner? I mean, this is the... You know, as we studied through the book of Mark, I shared, some of you heard this, that liberal commentators look at this story of the feeding of the 5,000. And their explanation of it is that they say, well, when Jesus handed out that meager little lunch, people kind of felt bad. And so they opened up all their packs and just started sharing. And the next thing you know, it's this big spontaneous act of kindness and a great humanitarian picnic broke out. (laughs) Well, that explains it. The problem is the whole story is preceded by the fact that these people are hungry and have nothing to eat. So either you take the Bible for face value or you try to make up ways that you can make it work. But it's so dumb. It's so dumb. We, everybody just gave what they had. Guy had a bag of Cheetos, they passed that out. You know, guy had a six-pack of Pepsi, they sent that around. And it just kind of spilled out. And suddenly, 15,000 people ate and 12 baskets full were left over when they were done you realize this is the only miracle that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four, describe? All four of them share this one. This is a big deal. About this miracle, the Apostle John wrote, John chapter 6, verse 14, when the people saw the sign which He had performed, the sign which He had performed, not the lunch that He got rolling, but the sign which He had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet's who is to come into the world. And so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone because it wasn't yet his time. Get the context of what happened. 5,000 men and their wives and children are fed, and as this is taking place, the people look around and they go, do you realize what's going on here? This, This has got to be the prophet. Why would they say that? Because Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. A prophet like me. Well, what did Moses do for the people? He prayed, and there was manna. And now the people are looking at the fish and the loaves, and they're going, It's like manna from heaven. Plus fish. This guy's even better. <laughs> It's fish and chips. It's the whole thing. (laughs) And they're so excited by this. The people present that day recognized a huge miracle had just taken place. Now, mind you, demons had been cast out. The dead had been raised. People had been healed. But the fish and the loaves blows their minds. Because suddenly now they're seeing a messianic miracle. The other ones are too. But this one is like manna from heaven. This has got to be the prophet. And they were ready to crown him king right then. And he withdraws. Not time yet. But verse 17, know this again, they all ate and were satisfied and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up 12 baskets full. 12 baskets full, 12 apostles. Get it? There's more than enough. Jesus in that instance is saying to the guys, hey listen, you had nothing when we started. I got you rolling and now there's more than you needed. That's what He does in ministry. He gives us more than we could possibly even use. He provides more than enough. By the way, later on, Mark chapter 8 tells us with the feeding of the 4,000 which was a feeding primarily in a Gentile region, not a Jewish region, but at the end of the feeding of the 4,000, seven baskets were picked up. Why? Signifying, seven being the number of completion, signifying that there's more than enough. Not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well, there is a complete provision made by Jesus. More than enough to complete the ministry of the church. And we wonder, are we going to be able to do this? Are we going to be able to finish what He started? Are we going to get there? More than enough. There's always an extra basket full than you expected. Verse 18, And it happened that while He was praying alone, the disciples were with Him, which I find interesting. <laughs> He's alone, but... You know, I I actually think that says something about the heart of Jesus when He prayed. So dialed in to the Father, you could have a thousand people around Him, but if He's praying, He's alone with with, with His Father. He's alone with the Lord. And I think that's a way to pray. You enter into that place with the Lord. And even if you're with brothers and sisters and you're all praying together, there is an intimacy there. That was one of the questions of the high school students last night. When we're in heaven... We're all going to be there. And you talk about how we're all going to be able to see Jesus and know Him and spend time with Him. Well, how is that possible if we're all going to be there? He's God. (laughs) (laughs) One-on-one with the Father when we pray. So He's praying, but then He questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And here it is. They answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others that one of the prophets of old has risen again and he says and here's the question who do you say that I am that's the one that is the one question in the Bible that every man woman and child on the face of the earth has to deal with who do you say that I am who am I because your answer to that question will determine where you spend eternity and Peter answered and said the Christ of God now they're in Caesarea Philippi This is up in the north of Israel. It's called Banyas today. And this is a much more simplified account than the confession of Peter that we read in Matthew chapter 16. I'm not going to get into all the extras about it. If you want to hear that, come to Israel. We'll talk about it there. But Luke seems to be honed in on the pivotal moment of Jesus' ministry. Watch it, verse 21. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. They had walked with Jesus long enough. At that point, we're six months out from the cross, by the way. The majority of Luke's Gospel is in the last six months of Jesus' life. And in that moment, as Peter confesses Boldly, You are the Christ. We believe that you are the Christ. And the other apostles, I assume, are nodding in agreement. And Jesus, in that moment, begins to very plainly tell them what was about to happen. And He never had before. If you're reading in the Gospels, the closest He comes is He says stuff like, I'll give you the sign of Jonah, Matthew chapter 12. Or... Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, John chapter two. But it was always kind of mysterious. What does he mean, this temple? What exactly does he mean, the sign of Jonah? What's he talking about? But the moment that Peter confessed Jesus Christ as Messiah, Jesus said, All right, listen, don't tell anybody this, but listen carefully. I'm gonna die. I am gonna be buried. And three days later, I am going to rise again. And Jesus, number four, Jesus portends His crucifixion. Yes, it's a word. (laughs) Jesus portends His crucifixion in no uncertain terms. Jesus, at this point in His ministry, again, two and a half years into this ministry, finally says, I'm going to suffer, guys. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to be raised up on the third day. Why? This is a pivotal moment. Why now, Lord? Why didn't you start three years ago with this? And spend the entire three years preparing them for this momentous, horrific event that's about to happen. Why now? Part of it is because perhaps the guys are starting to figure it out. <laughs> they're figuring out at least where they're going, who He is. They now know you're the Christ of God. And so He tells them, here's what's about to happen. So none of the guys would fall start. None of the guys would come racing across the line too early, declaring his true nature too soon. So he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, but don't tell a soul. You've got to keep this quiet. He waited until now. But there's another reason, gang, and it goes back to preparation. Why would Jesus share this information at this point in his ministry? He portended his own death to lay out the clear terms and conditions of discipleship. This is where I'm going, and if you're my followers, this is where you're going to read on, verse 23. And he was saying to them all, "If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me." This, these are the terms and conditions of discipleship. But but understand, this is not the requirement of discipleship and that's an important distinction Jesus is not saying you need to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me and if you do these things then I will give you salvation if you accomplish these things by the work of your, the sweat of your brow and your own blood and sweat and tears if you, if you can do this then I'll save you that's not what he's saying it's not the requirement of discipleship it is the reality of discipleship if you follow me, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have to deny yourself to follow me. You can't follow me and stay selfish. doesn't work. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Why? Because a cross is going to get laid on your back if you come after me. You have to follow me because I'm the only way to the Father. Think about it. What does God require of a person to be saved? It's not to do all these things. What God requires, John 6.29, is that you believe in Him whom He sent. That That's what's required for salvation. But discipleship is beyond salvation. Discipleship is the following after Jesus. And to truly follow after Jesus, you have to deny yourself. Otherwise, yourself gets in the way. Verse 24. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. It's what's going to happen. If you want to save your life, whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. Again, that's the result. That's the reality of following Jesus. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... The Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let me ask you this question, disciples. Is there anything about Jesus that you find embarrassing? Jillian just looked like, are you kidding? No, of course not. Absolutely not. I would say, I would respond, no. Let me ask you this. Is there anywhere you go or would go in your life that you would not want Him to come along? Now that's a different question, isn't it? Oh, well, there was that one place. I think I'd rather Jesus not come there with me. Well, then He embarrasses you. No, He doesn't. Is there anything you would rather He not hear you say? Is there anything you would rather He not see you do? Is there anything in your life that you want to watch that you know He would be uncomfortable watching with you? Well, yeah, then, then He embarrasses you. No, He doesn't. Are we ashamed of Him? Or are we so proud of Him that all that stuff, man, I would give that up in a heartbeat just to know He's with me always. I don't want to do stuff if He can't come. See, that's how I feel about my wife. I really do. I don't want to do stuff if Cheryl can't come. It's no fun. I'd rather she be there. I have so much more fun when she's there. And that's the attitude that that Jesus is trying to draw out here. As He prepares us for the kingdom, He's drawing us deeper into a relationship with Him that is so passionate, that is so wonderful. Anywhere I might go that He doesn't want to go, I'm like, (laughs) forget it. If you're not going, I'm not going. If you wouldn't say it, I'm not going to say it. If you won't watch it, I'm not watching it. Discipleship. Because in reality, there is no shame in following Jesus. Well, verse 27 says, I say to you, truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Peter, James, and John were standing there. All three. And they were about to see the kingdom personified by the king.